0: Al Jazeera podcast. Things haven't been going very smoothly in Yemen these days. Of course, the war's been raging for years now. And as many of us know, the country's on the brink of famine. One thing that's not in short supply, though, is weapons. You see, in January, the US Navy intercepted a fishing vessel in the Gulf of Oman, it was carrying weapons to the Houthi rebels who took control of most of the country in 2014. And, of course, as you know, Western countries send weapons to the Saudi-led coalition. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Essential Middle East Podcast. I'm Sami Zaydan.
1: Well, United States naval forces say they intercepted a fishing vessel in the Gulf of Oman after they discovered it was smuggling AK-47 assault rifles while transitioning in international waters along a maritime route from Iran to Yemen.
0: The U.S. Navy has been announcing boat seizures recently, carrying all kinds of weapons from Iran to the Houthis. We're talking a million rounds of ammunition, rocket fuses, propellant and explosives. that kind of smuggling would be a violation of the UN arms embargo on the Houthis. The US Fifth Fleet has basically been using everything at their disposal to try to cut off these weapons vessels that have been disguised as fishing vessels and they intercepted rocket fuses, chemicals used for rocket fuel, ammunition. And of course, as I mentioned, that's not the only weapons which are getting into the Yemen conflict. The West arms the Saudi-led coalition fighting the Houthis and helping prop up the internationally recognized government since 2015. A report by Oxfam says there were more than 1,700 attacks on civilians in around a year. And the charity says a quarter of them were by the coalition solely using British and American weapons. Let's bring our guests to talk about all of this now.
1: Hi, I'm Abu Bakr Shamahi. I'm Al Jazeera English Online's Middle East and North Africa editor, and I'm joining you here from Doha. Great to have you with us, Abu Bakr.
0: So let's start from what UN experts have been saying. They've said there's mounting evidence entities in Iran are sending weapons to the Houthis. Take us through
1: that evidence. So this has been a gradual thing that's been happening over many years now, where we're seeing every couple of months incidents, usually in the Arabian Sea, where either U.S. Navy ships, or British Navy ships, these various patrols will find boats, fishing trawlers even sometimes, which will have weapons on board and ranges, as you mentioned, things like ammunition, guns, even at times missile parts. like So that. this
0: is pretty routine, that they capture a ship full of weapons and stuff that is embargoed by the UN, right?
1: Yes. And then they'll say that this is originated from Iran and that it's on its way to Yemen. And this would make sense considering Iran's backing of the Houthi rebels in Yemen and an effort to clandestinely support the Houthis with these arms. Are we seeing an increase though? Are we seeing more ships being caught lately? I would say that it's operating at the similar levels that it's been operating at through the past few years. But what you're seeing is when these boat captures happen, there's renewed attention Mm. on this. And in light particularly, of course, of what's going on in Iran right now with their own domestic issues, it's interesting that they're still pursuing these attempts to support the groups that they back in the wider region. And I guess for every ship that is actually caught, many others make it through, right? Exactly, exactly. And the Houthis definitely are benefiting and have benefited from this support from the Iranians all the way back to 2015.
0: Yemen's Houthi rebels have reportedly attacked a facility run by Saudi Arabia's oil giant, Aramco the rebels unleashed a barrage of drone and missile attacks on Saudi Arabia, targeting a liquefied natural gas plant, water desalination plant, oil facility and power station. Is it Iranian support that has enabled the Houthi capabilities to develop so fast, to the point where they're capable of launching
1: rockets deep into Saudi Arabia or the UAE, right? See, this is where it's interesting, because... You've got different arguments that different people make. And ultimately, without that real investigation into the Houthis' actual capabilities, they will only reveal a part of how much the Iranians actually do support the Houthis with these weapons, which, again, the Iranians aren't going to reveal much information of as well. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. the Houthis, you've got to remember, they're kind of the continuation, in a way, of the government that existed in Sana'a at the time in 2014 when they took over the capital. This isn't just a rebel group. That emerged out of nowhere and were backed by the Iranians. They took over the military capabilities of the Yemeni state that existed in Sana'a at the time, which included missiles, which included heavy weaponry as well. So the idea that the Houthis have only been able to emerge militarily because of the Iranians is inaccurate. They took uh, over the state's abilities. Exact, and capabilities, exactly. Exactly, to a degree, yep. Yeah.
0: Now Why are the
1: Houthis important for Iran? Maybe we should explain that to listeners. So, generally, Iran seems to back various groups around the region that agree with Iran ideologically, whether that be from a religious angle, whether that be from a political angle, whether that be a bit of both. With Yemen, you've got to remember that, of course, Yemen is on the southern border of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has always considered Yemen its backyard. So
0: is this an Iranian attempt to encircle Saudi Arabia?
1: To a degree, yes. But they don't back the Houthis to the same extent that they back Hezbollah in Lebanon or various groups that they back in Iraq as well. I think with Yemen, it's almost like a card that the Iranians can play, but they can perhaps give up relatively easily should they get concessions in other parts of the region. And of course this is something in ongoing negotiations between the Saudis and the Iranians that will most likely come up and perhaps the Iranians will occasionally offer the Saudis this idea that maybe we're not going to back the Houthis as much as we previously did to try and get something in return from the Saudis.
0: Right, we're going to get more into the geopolitics of it but let's wrap up the whole smuggling issue yeah i think in april 22 there was this announcement about the, the us navy establishing a multinational naval task force has the us stepped up its monitoring of houthi supply routes in the last few months
1: yeah i think what we've seen most recently with the boats being uncovered the us is certainly been stepping it up. But like you said, the U.S. has been doing this even prior to this. I think sometimes these announcements are made to emphasize that the U.S. is present in the region and that it is able to counter Iran. Why is it important for the U.S. to stress it's present in the region? Why does the U.S.
0: care about what happens in Yemen? Is it just about countering Iran?
1: I I think there's a couple of different things. You've got countering Iran, you've got supporting one of their most important allies in the region, Saudi Arabia. You know, whether domestically that plays well or not. Countering Uh, Al-Qaeda and its affiliates. Of course as well, because instability in Yemen can eventually lead to opportunities for groups like Al-Qaeda, for groups like ISIL as well, to entrench themselves, not just the Houthis.
0: If we're going to talk about Yemen being awash with weapons, of course, we shouldn't
1: forget that weapons are coming from Western countries to the Saudi-led coalition, right? Exactly. The West, be it the United States or... Various different European countries, the United Kingdom, have supported the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates for many years with weapons, with course, support as well, with training to support them and the Saudi-led coalition in the fight against the Houthis. Now, that has involved airstrikes that have hit many civilian targets. There's been a lot of criticism by many
0: human rights groups about the effect of some of the operations by the saudi-led coalition and the
1: houthis right they're both Ex- exactly human rights groups united nations have criticized i'd say both sides but all the myriad number of sides who are involved in the war in yemen for violations committed against civilians and have accused all sides of, of war crimes as well
0: but of course the saudi-led coalition is effectively bolstering an internationally recognized government right while arming the Houthis is a bit different because then you're running foul of a UN arms embargo which is on
1: in place just for the Houthis. See, this is the thing because there is an internationally recognized government that does control a portion of the country. And so from the Saudi argument or even the Western argument, they have no qualms with supporting the Yemeni government. They believe that it is the right thing to do. And there's various UN resolution resolutions as well that you target specifically the Houthis and not the Yemeni government. And that's how the international system works at the end of the day. You've got a rebel group that's emerged, taken over a portion of the country through violent means. And for the United Nations, many countries within the international community, ultimately the goal, would be to restore the Yemeni government to power in the country, while somehow incorporating perhaps the Houthis in a the way. But the pushback against the Western support for the coalition is based more on the effects
0: and the deployment of those weapons, and what human rights groups say are often used in a way that kills too many civilians and is too indiscriminate. Exactly.
1: It's not so much with the goal. The political goal, Yeah, the goal of restoring. It's the, the means. Government. Yeah, it's a sheer number of civilians that have been killed and various numbers are bandied around. But ultimately, parts of Yemen have been destroyed. You know, I've been to Yemen during the war myself to the city of Taiz. And whilst a lot of the effects and the damage in Taiz were caused by the Houthis, there were also areas that were completely, been completely bombed out by the Saudi led coalition as well. Sunnite, such a historic beautiful city and yet in the past it's been hit multiple times by the saudi-led coalition and i think the feeling from a lot of human rights organizations but also from yemenis themselves that the saudis and other members of the saudi-led coalition are not doing as much as they can to prevent a civilian loss of life but even things like the humanitarian aspect of this conflict and allowing food and aid and goods to flow into yemen undisturbed
0: And you know what? As we're talking, Abu Bakr, I'm thinking, maybe we should take a step back for a second and explain why there is this stage of conflict going on in Yemen in the first place. So there was this popular uprising, a revolution, yep, 2011. right? There was hopes for a new democratic system. And they were reaching some kind of understanding with the Houthis, but then prices go up in 2013, 2014, and the Houthis march on Sana'a and take over most of the country in what those who were not aligned with the Houthis said, hey, that's a coup, and that's when things kick off. We can't say that's when conflict started in Yemen, mm. but that's when things really kicked off to the next level. Is that...
1: I got my history right. (laughs) Broadly, yes, and it just obviously depends on who you speak to at the end of the day because there are different arguments. What the ultimate cause of this conflict is, but ultimately, it's a struggle over power in the country. 2011, you have this revolution, this real attempt to bring change in the country, but you had entrenched powers within the country. President Ali Abdullah Saleh ruled Yemen for 33 years, and he allied with the very force that he had fought six wars against the Houthis, because the Houthis also had their reasons for not accepting the post-revolution order. And so the Houthis will say they launched a revolution against corruption. Mm. Their opponents will say it was a cynical attempt to take over the state. Mm. What we do know and what everyone can agree on is since 2014, they did take the capital Sana'a. They did effectively rule the north of the country. They pushed out the government that so was internationally started. recognized. President Abd Hadi, the mm. former president of Yemen now, he fled to Saudi Arabia. And then you had this situation where the Saudis intervened on his behalf and began this bombing campaign. Because, assumedly,
0: they were also worried that the Houthis represent an extension of Iranian
1: influence on their southern border. For the Saudis, this is their backyard. They will not Mm. accept, from a security perspective, and I think whatever you think of Mm. their involvement in Yemen and their actions in Yemen, from a security perspective, it did not make sense for them to allow the Houthis to just entrench themselves this Iranian ally to entrench themselves on their southern border when they already feel surrounded to a degree in the region All right you know what i don't think we've done a bad job in trying to sum up the last 11 12 years I hope of so. <laughs> <that> many <laughs>
0: conflict so let's take a quick break now we'll be back in a moment
1: in this week's episode of the take we hear about how scammers going for your money may be victims themselves. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: All right, welcome back, everyone. Let's continue our chat about Yemen. So we've talked a lot about conflict in part one, haven't we? Let's focus now on peace efforts, Abu Bakr. Dozens of aid agencies and international bodies had begged Yemen's warring factions to come together and extend a truce that has lasted for six months. So the warring parties, they reached a truce agreement, which was then extended. But it now seems to be faltering with all the increased fighting in places like Ma'arab and Shabwa, right, in 2022.
1: Yeah, so this truce agreement came in April and it was actually interesting at the time because over the past few years, I would say definitely during 2021, but even prior to that, it was really the Houthis that were making the advances on the battlefield. And then when it looked like that they were really entering Merib, this bastion of the Yemeni government in the north, they were pushed back by the UAE-backed forces who stepped in just at the right time to stop the Houthis from advancing and that's when you see the negotiations starting to ramp up and eventually this truce agreement agreed in April. The truce agreement lasted six months. During that time, there wasn't much in the way of fighting but it broadly lasted. And I think the good thing for many people in the country was, even though they knew that it perhaps wasn't a long-term solution, it still felt like, at least for once, they could breathe in a mm. way. that This conflict has been frozen for a degree, flights coming back into Sana'a for the first time in years, more aid and more goods coming into the country. It calmed the situation down. Yeah, may it, not
0: have been a comprehensive
1: peace deal, but it was a truce, right? Exactly. People felt it was finally an opportunity. So for what's gone to south? Out. Well, what's happened is, after six months of this truce, every two months it be renegotiated and they'd agree on the truce again. You get the situation where the Houthis do not agree to renew the truce. They say that it's because various things they want, including unfiltered use of the ports and a complete end to any form of, of Saudi control over these ships entering ports in the north of the country and various other things that they wanted as well.
0: So those reports about the broad contours or the broad principles of a peace deal were more or less the parties were on the same page. That's not true. Things like Riyadh just wanted a commitment that the Houthis are not going to threaten its security. Houthis wanted money, payments for salaries.
1: And that was the impression we had at one point, that they're almost there. It's when you get into the weeds that Mm. it becomes complicated (laughs) because even things like salaries, on the surface level, it feels like that's something that everyone would agree upon. Mm. However, the Yemeni government will come and say the salary issue will happily pay people who work in the medical field, it's teachers or that kind of thing, but we're not going to pay civil servants who Houthis have installed Mm. since coming into power. So they're saying we're not going to support what they think is the Houthi war effort. And then... The government side, they're saying we want full access to the city of Taiz, which has been blockaded by the Houthis. The Houthis will say, yes, but there should also be other roads that need to be open around the country as well. And they They, just cannot get past these things that, mm -hmm. while it appears all sides should agree on these things. Some deal breakers. The details, yeah, they just can't get past them. This is what Houthi sources are saying. They're blaming the US for holding up a peace deal. Yes, I think the Houthis have long attacked the US role in the country. The Houthis for years have called this, the whole Saudi led coalition, they call it the US Zionist, the Saudi imperialist attack on Yemen, all that kind of stuff. I think the US does have a role in the war in Yemen, of course, as we've said, in terms of support for the Saudis. I would say, though, that primarily this is a discussion and negotiations that are going on between the Saudis, between the Yemeni government, between the Houthis, rather than the Americans and even the Iran, to a degree, have a lesser role in those Mm. negotiations and those primary powers do. Abu Bakr, is that part of the problem, though? There's simply
0: too many parties involved. I mean, even when you talk about the Yemenis, it's not simply pro and anti-Houthis, right? I don't want to get lost in the alphabet soup of different tribal units and arrangements, but, man, there's a lot of force. The UAE has
1: its allies, the... Saudis have their allies, right? There's so many different groups in the country. You've got groups that officially part of the Saudi-led coalition that is in support of the Yemeni government, and yet they want separation from the country itself. Forget the countries outside. Internally, how can you keep all these different parties to the conflict happy? You can't. And that's the thing. And that, for me, looking at it from outside, trying to analyse the situation, it's why... I'm still slightly pessimistic that any lasting deal is on the horizon because every side still thinks that it can get exactly what it wants. And really that's just contradictory and impossible to do. So you would need to have at least one side accepting a certain degree of concessions that right now, like I say, they're not willing to make Well, the theory of peacemaking says peace doesn't
0: happen till the warring parties reach that point of equilibrium when yep. they believe this is as much as we, we can get. But with so many parties, I guess they all need to reach that point and it's not coming. No. And the people paying the price, maybe this is where we should talk about the humanitarian situation.
1: More than 150,000 people have been killed during eight years of fighting. The conflict's created one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. The UN says more than four million people have been displaced. Nineteen million others are going hungry.
0: We've been hearing that it's on the brink of famine. If this situation with the fighting and the war doesn't end soon, what's going to happen? I mean, human rights organisations say already 20 million people are in need of assistance today.
1: In Yemen, you've got this situation since the start of the war, where Yemen was already a fairly poor country in the region. But you've got a situation where the rich have become poorer, the middle class have become poor, and the poor, they're off the cliff now. I remember in 2017, when I last went to Yemen, the level of poverty that I saw there was just something I couldn't compare to the levels that I'd seen before. And What's really scary about this conflict is there are so many people desperate for food, desperate for medication, children dying, and not because of a direct result of a bomb or a missile. Though, of course, that does happen. But because starvation. they haven't got food or medicine. Exactly, that's, and it's should. Who's not be blocking happening. that stuff? I mean, both sides
0: obviously blame each other and say each one is imposing a blockade. But you know, what's happening here?
1: So that's the thing, and fingers are pointed by all sides here. You've got the Houthis who will say, well, the Saudis are only letting a certain number of ships to come into the country and to land. For the Saudis, they'll say, well, this is necessary to make sure that weapons aren't coming in. And then there are internal blockades going on situations where trucks can't go past certain places, certain front lines, because various groups will not want them to go through. There's also people who've profited immensely from all sides Mm. of the conflict from allowing this black market to emerge. People have been getting very rich from this conflict at the expense of your average Yemeni who is struggling to fill up their car, struggling to put food on the table when it should be available in the country. Bobakar, it's been good talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thank you for
0: listening. This episode was produced by our intern, Neda Shakir. Sound design was by George Elwir. Our engagement producer is Ayal Malik. And our assistant engagement producer is Munira Dosari. Our recording engineer is Hamdi Oon. Omar al-Saleh is our executive producer and head of audio is Ney Alvarez. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. For now, it's goodbye.